<laughs> so I want to share a nightmare I had the other night. Maybe, maybe you've had some of these yourself. Maybe I've been watching too much news. I was watching the riots. I was watching, and again, sitting in my armchair, I, I had some opinions. And I, and I recognize now they were very, very uninformed opinions. Um, they were ignorant opinions. Um, they were opinions that, that, that were birthed out of, well, ignorance. And that's not stupidity, but it's I didn't know things. And I hadn't taken the time to know them until this week. And again, all, all day Friday, all day Saturday, my wife kept asking me, what's wrong with you? If you're praying, if you love to pray, if you're a prayer, would you pray for me as I deliver this message? This, this whole thing rocked me. Um, I have nightmares pretty easily. Uh, my wife's gotten used to me yelling and thrashing, and, and she knows immediately this isn't good, so she wakes me up. And so I had a nightmare Friday night, Thursday night. I can't remember now which night it was, and we, we were taking our morning walk. And I explained, I shared to Diane uh, this nightmare I had, and I'm, I'm standing on a street, and for some reason, I have no idea, don't read into this, I'm standing there with two white girls. And I'm standing there next to a, <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you the details, they're weird, please don't read into this. It was a white panel van. And we're at the back of the van, and the van's pointing that direction, and I'm standing with these two girls, and I hear a lot of commotion. I turn around, and I hear, and I see, and I hear, and, and a lot of black men running. And the two girls take off running in the opposite direction. And I was angry at myself because it, in this nightmare, as they ran by, I didn't do a thing. I, I, I distinctly remember I, I kind of tried to stick out my foot and trip somebody. I missed. They went right by. I was petrified. Now, I want you to notice something. In this nightmare, the black men are bad, and I'm bad for not stopping bad people. Now, I just want you to take a moment and stop. How many things are wrong with this? How many things are wrong? And again, I know in our nightmares and our dreams, our subconscious maybe comes forward. So there's a certain aspect, there's a certain part of me uh, that, that believes what I just said. And I, I don't want to believe it, but that's, that's where I've arrived in America. There's so many things wrong with that mental imagery. And then the following morning... Again, that, that in the nightmare, I was angry at the crowd, and I was angry at myself for not stopping them. And then in the next morning, as I was talking and explaining it to Diane, all of a sudden, the anger turned toward me, and I got really angry with myself. And as I tried to explain it to Diane, I'm, we're walking in front of these poor neighbors, and there's this fool out there sobbing. I, I couldn't pull it together. I couldn't hardly explain it to Diane. What was happening? Two questions jumped into my mind. Based on that nightmare, the first question was, how can God so love such angry people who destroy? And you notice I didn't say hateful, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. There's a difference. And I imagine there were some hate in the crowd, but my understanding is there's just a whole lot of anger. And anger left unresolved can quickly 
become hate. Now that store owner in this photograph here, it's an Arby's it appears. My thought is that store owner could very well not have a racist bone in their body. Did they deserve the destruction of their place and business? No. And I would suspect, it wouldn't surprise me, if the owners were white, that they felt more hate than anger from the crowd. Believing that destruction was personal since they weren't racist, assuming that there wasn't a racist bone in their body. Believing that since they weren't racist, no one could be angry with them. And why were these people therefore destroying their place of business? And my second question, while I was experiencing that, it's like the Holy Spirit, man, jumped me. <laughs> That's the only way I can say it. It was, it was as soon as that thought left my mouth, and this is where it hit me hard. Why was I experiencing emotions much closer to hate than anger? And these emotions are so far off the mark. Maybe the theologians in the crowd understand what off the mark really means. That's sin. When we miss the mark, when we fall short of everything that God created us to be, we, we, we miss the mark. And, and that's a definition of sin. We, we, we come up short. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all missed the mark. Does that make sense? So I started digging into everything. I, I, I needed to understand and I found out it's very easy to see how anger becomes hate. See, there's a difference between anger and hate. Simply put, anger is an emotion. And as we learned when we talked about the last couple of weeks about anxiety as opposed to worry, anxiety is emotion, and you should never bag on people who are feeling emotion because that's not something that they can control. And this is the same thing. Anger is an emotion, while hate is a is a more permanent state or a belief. Anger is usually temporarily, temporary, while hate is more permanent. Not absolutely permanent, but tends to be more permanent. You can continuously hate something or somebody without feeling anger all the time, for example. You may feel a whole bunch of different emotions, not just anger, while also hating a thing or a person. I hate mosquitoes, but I'm not angry with them. They're just doing what mosquitoes do. It's not personal. They don't hate me. They're not angry with me. And so it's very, very hard to feel any kind of hate or angry. angry irritation? Big time. Mosquitoes irritate me no end. And I love being up here because I don't see mosquitoes very often. Kind of love that. But I hate mosquitoes. God's word tells us that we should never let anger become hate. We should never let that emotion become a permanent state but that's a tall order. When the object of your anger fails to acknowledge or validate the reasons behind your anger, they brush it off and just say, stop being angry. You have no right to do this. You have no right to be angry. It's even worse when the only response you get is to feel pitied or patronized. This is a brutal picture. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I need to put this up. For well over 200 years, the majority of white Americans responded to such imagery as you see right now. And this kind of history with nothing more than pity, maybe sympathy, 
but never any sustained attempt or effort to walk in a black man's shoes, let alone hang from a white man's rope as a white crowd cheered. I don't know if you've ever tried to put yourself into that position. Now, the store owners from the previous picture, believing or even knowing that they've done nothing wrong, might wrongly conclude that the rioters hate them simply for being white. That might not be true. I want you just to consider this. Any hate in the rioting crowd comes not from the store owners doing anything wrong, but I get a distinct impression that lots of the hate was birthed as white America sat by and they did nothing right. It's so easy to say, I've done nothing wrong. I've never been racist. I'm not that. As we stood by and, and see images like what we just saw, and people know that we, we just stood by and watched, like in my nightmare. We've been indifferent. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of truth is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. We just don't care enough to do anything about racism other than not participating in racist actions and not being racist ourselves. So back to my second question, how could I be so far off the mark? How could I be feeling such hatred when my heavenly Father feels nothing but sorrow? That's a problem. There, there's something wrong, something horribly wrong with that picture. So not more than an hour later, God answered my question. God, he, he does that, <laughs> and, and I love it. I was listening to a webinar. I was with Pastor Dan. We were listening to a webinar. Dr. Deirdre Brower Latz from the Nazarene Bible College in England. She was talking about marginalized in her society. And she had made the, the comment that they don't, that their riots that you see in England, they don't have as an absolute base skin color, which tends to be our base. There, it tends to be more economic, although there is color, there is there's ethnic issues and religious, there, there is all that, the same as here. Um, but she said it's more socioeconomic. The, the people running through the streets really aren't necessarily of any particular color. They're, they're usually young, white men out of a job. And... The government hasn't responded. They haven't heard their pleas. And now they're just angry and they're lashing out. So it's a little bit different. She, she pointed that out. She's a little bit different. Um, but she was driven, driving out. How could the church, how could the church, how should the church be addressing the marginalized in our local communities? And she talked about having or not having skin in the game. And I'd, I'd never heard that phrase. I, well, I'm fairly certain, but it, it, it clicked real big time in my mind. Skin in the game. I guess it originated with horse racing. The owner has skin in the game because he owns the horse, right? The, all of everyone else, they're betting on dozens of different horses. But the owner, totally focused, he's, he's, he's got a stake in the outcome. He's a part of the outcome. And then I realized I really don't have skin in this game. I've got a few black friends. I have a very good, very good black friend, and, and his wife, he's from L.A. She's from East Texas. She once told me, Pastor Jerry, don't think that since you know Pastor David, you know black. He's white black. 
I didn't understand that. I, I still have a little trouble with it. Um, but she was from the deep south, and she understood, really, what it meant to be black in America. I don't have skin in the game. See, none of this has ever happened to me or my kind. I know I've seen this picture so many times, and each time I see it, I know my wife too. We, we look at the faces in the crowd behind this young black woman trying to go to college in Mississippi, and I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed. I, I, there's so many emotions that I feel when I see this picture, and I, I, mean, I, I feel for this young woman so strongly. So what could that skin in the game look like if I can never truly know, and I, I believe this to be true, I can never truly know what it feels like to walk down the street as a black man and watch men pull their children closer or put their children on the other side of them and pull their wives closer as if you were like the beast in Beauty and the Beast. I, I don't know what that feels. I, I, I don't think I really can. Maybe temporarily I can, I can put on a costume, I can do some things, but to live out life, to, to walk out every day, Pastor Dan was talking about a black friend of his, he says, whenever they get pulled over, the first thing that they enter their mind is they've got to pull underneath a, a, the brightest spot possible. This, this is what, 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 what they think, what a black American thinks as they go about their life here in America. They're a target to a certain degree. I know we don't have systemic racism, but legal racism, but I'll, I'll change that statement. We don't have legal racism, but we've still got systemic racism big time. And a lot of it is kind of colorblind. We don't even recognize it because we've never made an attempt to understand the world from a black person's viewpoint. Again, to even assume that I can feel all that a black man feels in America is a bit insulting and just a little bit disingenuous, I think. So what are my options? What are your options? At the most basic level, the words of the Apostle Paul come to mind. Let's just call this step one, and it needs to be step one, and there needs to be steps following this. Romans 12, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, chapters, chapter 7, uh, excuse me, 7, 12, um, verses 17 and 18, it says this, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, and that's a pretty big caveat there, live at peace with everybody. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord in verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and that's a weird phrase. That simply means when they see us do something loving and kind and they haven't been doing loving and kind things, they're a little bit ashamed. I know when I see somebody do something loving and kind and I haven't, I feel shame. I feel like coals have been heaped on my head. That was the, the Jewish way of mourning and feeling suffering. And here's the, here's the kicker, verse 21. Do not... Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To stoop to vengeance is to be ourselves overcome with evil. I know a lot of people are wanting to get out there and counter-protest and bring guns. And I think we're missing the point if that's our tact. We're ignoring the hurt, and we're just addressing the anger. But we're really not looking at what, 
where the anger came from, and that's a lousy place to start, lack of understanding. Evil can never be conquered by evil. If hatred is met with more hatred, it's only increased. But if it's met with love, an antidote to the poison has been found. The only real way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. Booker T. Washington, very well-educated black man in the early part of this century, 20th century, pardon me. He knew prejudice. He knew racism quite well. He wrote this, I will never allow any man to make me lower myself by hating him. And we do. We lower ourselves when we move from anger to hate. Now, to black America, this is what I've been told, the passages that we just read from Romans chapter 12, don't pay back. Be nice to somebody who's hurting you and insulting you. These verses have by necessity been almost applied almost exclusively to their relationship with white America. And for good reason. Nobody left a black household in the morning without these words of warning. They, every parent, every black parent knew that their kids were going out into the world that, in which people were not just angry with them, but people hated them. And most black parents had learned, lived long enough to understand that when evil was repaid with evil, lynchings and horrible things happen. This is their reality. To white America, this passage tends to apply to individuals that aren't nice to us. Be nice to the people who aren't nice to you, your office worker. Strangely enough, we never look at this verse thinking that office worker wants to take us out and hang us. That doesn't enter our minds. We never apply it like the black community does, never to a whole group of people who hates us as a group of people. In our current situation, this passage, I think it needs a little follow-up, though. In order to address any temporary anger that's quickly sliding into a more permanent hatred, I want to look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, this is the end of the chapter, the end of chapter 9. And we read that when he, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Now, here's the strange thing about chapter 9 of Matthew. Before this moment, Jesus is responding to crisis after crisis. Everything that, nearly everything that happens in chapter 9 before this statement, uh, Jesus didn't initiate. People came to him with their suffering, hoping and praying that he, he would feel what they feel when the religious authorities of their day refused to feel what they feel. They had heard that Jesus feels what they feel, and, and then he acts. He doesn't just enter our life, but he's moved to compassion. He's moved to do something. So Jesus, he's just been reacting. I mean, we're never really privy to what Jesus is thinking. Um, I'm thinking compassion fatigue. 
right? So far, before this passage, in this one chapter, Jesus says, let's see, he's forgiven and healed a paralyzed man. He's raised a dead girl back to life. He's healed a sick woman who's been sick for a very, very long time, given sight to a couple blind guys and enabled a mute man who had demons to speak. Most of us would have called it a day, a little me time now, right? I'm going to go home. I'm going to turn on the knee. I do this. At the end of a workday, I tell Diane, she says, well, do you want to read? And I said, I, no, I, I, need to, I need to shut my brain off. I, I just need to stop thinking. Can we just turn on the TV? And, and, I, and I call it stupid TV, and she knows it's stupid TV. I'll, I'll put on the worst movies, just the horrendous, But because I don't want to think anymore. I, I, I have compassion fatigue. Before we move on, I want to talk about compassion because this verse isn't going to make a whole lot of sense unless we truly get our heads around some terms that we use, some English terms. Um, I want to look at compassion. I want to look at sympathy. I want to look at empathy. And I want to look at pity. They're not the same. I'm going to show you a couple definitions. It's from several different sources. I'm kind of conglomerated, put everything kind of together. Pity says, I'm sorry for you. I understand your suffering. And again, these definitions are somewhat fluid, but they clearly show a gradual increase in care and concern as you move, as you move down. Pity is uh, feeling sorry from a distance. And then we move to sympathy, and, and it's to feel maybe a little bit closer up. I feel not sorry for you, but I, I feel for you. I care. It, it moved from the head in pity to the heart at this point. Okay, so, so, so there's some movement going on from the head, and now sympathy becomes a little bit more emotional. But as you cross from sympathy to empathy, there's a line that you cross. This line is where you finally acquire skin in the game. Psychologist Carl Rogers defines sympathy as this. He says, empathy, excuse me, empathy. Empathy is entering the perpetual world of the other and becoming thoroughly at home in it. Theologians call this incarnational love. This is how the Apostle John wrote it. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word, the very essence of God, the very mind of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us of course referring to Jesus Christ this was the incarnation this was Jesus suffering with us coming alongside us just like Doug pointed out and he had compassion on us in other words God's heart breaks by what breaks us but even after a long day of healing it never leads to compassion fatigue or despair or depression or immobility it always moves him to action to healing he can't stand by and watch suffering. He simply cannot stand by. And we need to take a cue from Jesus. We can no longer stand by. Whether we're in despair, whether we have compassion, fatigue, whether this is just depressing because it is, we can't be immobile. So let's put these definitions into actual words that you might hear somebody say or you might even say yourself. Pity. Oh, no, racism is awful, you poor thing. Zero emotional engagement. 
One writer says, condescending pity, even when translated into spontaneous and generous help, does not musically touch the soul of the grieved. In other words, the grieved know pity when they see it. They know you don't care. You're just doing something. Pat yourself on the back. It's all about you to a certain degree. Sympathy says, I'm so sad that you have to deal with racism again. It went from the head, and now I'm, I'm feeling it just a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing your, your pain. I, I'm acknowledging your pain with my heart. The grief feel nothing with sympathy. They feel nothing but, well, honestly, patronizing condescension. But with empathy, I understand how you feel. My husband, my wife is black. This is just not me. With empathy, the grieve feels heard and validated. But then we move to compassion because empathy simply isn't enough. And I know a lot of us, we, we feel like, okay, I'm, I, I understand. I've, I've dug into it, and I, I, I totally feel for you. Um, but, but, I, but can I just say amen for the fact that Jesus didn't stop at empathy? He didn't just stop feeling. He didn't stop at feeling for us and suffering feeling along with us, he actually decided, I'm going to suffer alongside them. One step past empathy. I'm going to walk with you until you feel safe. Compassion literally means to suffer with. Compassion. The passion is the suffering of the Christ. So we suffer with those who are suffering. Fact of the matter is, compassion, and we know this from God's Word, we know this from psychologists, suffering is actually decreased when somebody suffers with us. Isn't that the craziest thing? It doesn't increase. But when we mourn with those that mourn, the suffering goes down, and the well-being and the joy goes up. I, that sounds so counterintuitive. We want to, when people are mourning, we want to say, hey, get over it. Let's be happy. Let's be victorious. Listen, you're not acting like a Christian. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, with all this in mind, let's go back to the Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Then he used two crucial words. Watch this. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the word for harassed, we have skulmanoi, skulmanoi. And it describes a corpse laid out and mangled on the roadway. Uh, someone who's been plundered by evil men or tormented by those even without condescending pity. Or somebody treated with cruel indifference. Somebody who is utterly wearied by a journey which seems to know no end. I believe this is the black experience in America. This journey has been so long and it seems like there is no end. The other word helpless is irminoi. It means to be laid prostrate. It describes a man too drunk to stand up. But it also describes a man unable to rise because of his wounds, because of what men did to him. And he simply can't get up. So how do we move from pity to sympathy to empathy and finally to compassion? Jesus told a remarkable story to illustrate this point ex exactly. This is in Luke chapter 10. Many of you know this that's the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man answered, love the Lord with all your guard, with all your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The idea, if you can picture it, is the Jewish scribes, they, they, they had these little boxes on their wrists and on their foreheads, and they had these things written on them. And it's literally like Jesus said, well, what's it say on that little thingy you got hanging on your head? And this is exactly what was written on that little thingy on their head. They got a name for it. I can't remember the name of it. And then the guy added something that was commendable, which really isn't written. It was from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Jesus liked that. Says, you have replied, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Do this and you, you will finally experience that abundant life that, that I've been talking about, that you've been searching for all these years. You're, you're going to find the joy and the peace of God in this lifetime and in the next lifetime. You're going to have abundant life. Good job. But the man wanted to justify himself. And again, justify is a legal term. And I immediately, my mind went to, okay, he's, he's probably aware that he's been slicing and dicing. He's been playing lawyer, right? Which we're all really good at doing. How much do I got to love him? Can I just read about him in the newspaper? Do I really got to go out there? He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, so, so who is my neighbor? And to the Jewish people, their neighbors were co-Jews, Israelites. Anybody who didn't believe as they believed, didn't matter really the skin color, that wasn't the issue. Um, you were a Gentile. You literally, the prayer of a Jewish man, thank God that I'm not a Gentile. I'll just be honest and thank God that I wasn't a woman. That, that was their prayer, okay? So take it for what it is. This man wanted permission to love some but not others, particularly people from other races, the Gentiles. The passage continues. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a very dangerous road. Jericho down low, going up to Jerusalem, a lot of robbers on, even to this day, it's a very dangerous road. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went off, leaving him half dead. Can you, can you say helpless? What was the other word that we used? Helpless and harassed, like a corpse splayed out. There's an incredible connection between that passage and this passage from Luke. Leaving him half dead, leaving him helpless, splayed out as like a corpse. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Both were concerned with ceremonial cleanliness. It was their turn to serve at the temple. And if they touched a dead body, they would have to be, they were literally unclean. They weren't sinful. Don't get confused. Unclean, clean, sinful, not sinful. They just weren't allowed to participate in the life of God when they have touched something dead. God was trying to make a statement, a big, big, big statement through these laws that he had. And if they had touched this dead body, they would be unclean and they would miss their opportunity to serve in the temple. And that was a pretty big deal. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion and came to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on them oil and wine, which, eh, don't do that if you find me on the side of the road. Apparently, this was huge then. Band-Aids. Okay, all right, just set that straight. Verse 34, and he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the passage goes on. This guy invested 
his own money, gave his money to the innkeeper and said, I'm going to come back. He must have been a trustworthy person. Um, use this money to take care of this guy. Take care of this guy. If you have to use anything else of your own, I will pay you back. This will just, just, just to start. Again, notice that the Samaritan was moved to compassion only when he stopped long enough, looked into the situation closely, and then came near the man. Compassion is a powerful form of love that involves empathy, but it's hard to move from empathy to compassion when looking from afar as the religious leaders had done. We're far more likely to empathize when drawing near to victims. When we get involved, our capacity for compassion increases, right, because we, we're moved. So how does one come near in such explosive times? A lot of people have decided they've gone out in the streets, and I would say that God is not calling us. That might be what God is calling a lot of us to do, but for many of us, that would mean martyrdom. And, and I, think, I think God wants living sacrifices, so, so, so please don't play a silly game. I'm going to go out and give my life for this situation. Um, give your life while living. Be a living sacrifice. That was a freebie there. So how does one come near in such explosive times? The best and simplest way is to commit to learning and understanding. I was listening to a, 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 a preacher, my, my in-laws. They love this guy. They listen to this guy. I don't know if they love him. Uh, Robert Morris, pastor in Dallas, big church. And he said, basically, the problem is this. If you can uh, zero in on that camera, this was his illustration. This isn't mine. And he asked the audience, what did you, did you see the name on this water bottle? And they all replied, Propel, if you can see that. And then Robert Moore says, well, I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that from where I'm at. And then he said, in order to, in order to see what you're seeing, I'm going to have to walk around. I'm going to have to walk around to this, this bottom. I'm going to have to walk around to the other side. And, and that's where I finally see, oh, okay, that, there, now I understand. Now I see what you see. But back around here before I had moved, before I was moved, I couldn't understand. I couldn't see a thing. I could not see what you see. He writes, I'll never see what you see until I take the time to walk around the bottle. And we do need to take the time to walk around the issue and see what our brothers and sisters are seeing and see what they're feeling. And he suggests this, stop arguing about protests and demonstrations. Instead of arguing, take the time to understand what your brothers and sisters are trying to say. And I like this one. He added, don't look at it simply as an issue or as history. Look at this as people. Now, and I've run into this quite often. People have an issue with somebody else, and then when somebody they love becomes that somebody else, suddenly their hearts are softened because suddenly they're face-to-face -face with a person, not an idea that you might not agree with, but a person that feels and sees things. To this end, walking around and understanding the situation I've committed myself to following a guy named Emmanuel Acho. Acho. Hope I'm saying that right. He is a former middle linebacker in the NFL, played for, I believe, the Philadelphia Eagles. Right there is a picture of him. On the social media show that he just started, just his first installment, um, he's calling it Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. And basically, he's explaining, a lot of my white friends have been calling me, what do I do? What do I do? I, he said, and, and he said something that's never happened before. This is a brand new thing which gives a lot of people hope. 
So he decided to start this little video series. You can look up his name on, on the, your computer search bar, and you will find his little video series. Again, he's done one so far. And in the first one, he addresses four questions. He says, the first question he asks is, why are black people rioting instead of protesting peacefully? Would you just be honest? Have you asked the same question? I know I have. Totally. Second question, why does white privilege exist? Third question, how come you can say the N-word and we can't? Things on our mind. And the fourth one was pretty big. How come black people care more about white-on-black crime than black-on-black crime? I'm not going to give, I, I'm, I'm going to look at one of his questions, but I, I, um, I, I would suggest that you go listen to him personally uh, and then maybe start, and again, this is just one, just, just one, this is something I'm going to be doing. But he said this, when addressing the rioting, Achu said, I don't condone rioting and I'm sure you don't either because for the most part, black people are looting and rioting destructively or destroying their own homes. But he said this, when you think about the five stages of grief, you come up to one called anger. And he writes, sometimes emotions don't know their actions. He says, I remember my mom when I was a child, she lost her sister. I just remember her yelling and screaming and throwing herself into a wall. Throwing yourself into a wall is not going to change anything, he writes. You're actually harming yourself, but sometimes pain and hurt, it doesn't know how to express itself. The only way we can solve this issue, he concluded, is by exposure, education, compassion, and empathy. A few thoughts for the guys. Guys, you need to listen to me very closely here. See, we've got a problem on top of everything else. Um, I used to ask the teens, describe your bedrooms. And uh, generally speaking, most of the guys, their bedrooms, as they described them, were filled with trophies and all of their accomplishments, right? right? All the things that they had done. And generally speaking, most of the girls' bedrooms were filled with uh, personal mementos of relationships. And that, that really, for me, drew a very, very clear picture of, I, I don't know how much is nurture, how much is nature, not going to get into all that, but, but in our culture, in our society here in America, guys are, guys are bent on achievement. They, they just, they, right, somebody brings a problem, I'm going to fix your problem. You're going to be in trouble if you bring this mindset into the conversation too early. I learned this in my marriage. Men need to learn that empathetic love that leads to compassion starts by shutting up and just listening. Don't solve the problem for them. They are going to get angry. I know by experience. Unless you want them to feel pitied, patronized, or even stupid. They're not asking us to solve their problems. They're asking us to feel what they feel. Those who suffer often first need a fellow sufferer who understands. I got a buddy, Josh Hermsmeyer from San Diego. He was one of my counselors at the camps I used to run and just amazing guy. He writes this. He says, I wrote my thesis for his graduate degree on how a predominantly white church responded to the black power movement. This was a few years ago. It wasn't until I was in the heart of graduate school that I learned how my own past acts of appropriation and color blindness could be so hurtful to people of color. That's when I learned how, about how embedded racism is in our country. 
That's when I learned that the odds were stacked in my favor the moment I was born a white male in a society of systemic racism and sexism. That's when I learned I could never possibly know what it's like to walk even a step in a black man's shoes. But that's also when I learned that I can know what it's like to walk beside him. And I guess that's my challenge. That was his, that was his writing. That's my challenge. In other words, they want to know that somebody feels what they feel. Wouldn't it be nice to have a friend whose empathy was as full as it could be, right? What if somebody existed who always felt what we felt, and we do? This is in Hebrew chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us therefore approach God's throne with grace and with confidence, God's throne of grace with confidence, so that may, we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And as we turn today to a day of prayer and fasting, I Again, I want to suggest don't stop it, Lord. Please help them. Please make racism go away. I think a better scriptural prayer would be, Lord, show me what I can do so that I too can be like Jesus, so that I can lead people with confidence to the grace, the throne of grace. So how can I have skin in the game? I think this prayer is, is key. And I, and I truly believe as I'm watching the news and, and a lot of people are feeling this, as you're looking at the crowds, they're not all black anymore. Finally, people are getting angry who aren't black, who haven't experienced the black experience. But they, they shut up long enough to listen and to walk alongside. And you're seeing that in the streets, and we've, we've never seen it to this degree. And, and, and pundits are making this comment, and they're, they're, they're pointing this out as something rather amazing. And I think that if we take the advice of Scripture, as we take the advice of these men and women who are struggling to follow Christ, I think we can turn back the clock just a little bit. And we can pull back from the hate just enough so that we can all feel the anger and we can address the issue that so leads to hate. If you bow your heads, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servants who are speaking out in your name beautifully with such insight Father, today as we, we, as we pray and we fast, how do, we, how do we bring your son into this situation? How do we bring a perfect priest? Father, show us, show us a way. I know it starts with understanding but what part are we going to be playing in this struggle that needs to end? And Father, again, we, we lament the situation 
and we repent of our own colorblindness, intentional ignorance. But from here on out, Father, that, that that's no longer an excuse. It, it, it doesn't work anymore. There's too much information available. And you would have to shut your eyes to the world to not see and hear, Father, what you're seeing and hearing. Don't let us do that. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray. Amen.